Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending May 12. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Emma Gray from Impact Economics and Policy gives us a balanced overview of this week's federal budget. And Nat's cinematic slow pursuit of a tram gets us talking about favourite car chase scenes. Olive harvest season is upon us, so Digger takes us through his pruning tips and his favourite Niçoise sandwich. Supreme Queen 2023 and Miss First Nations, Cerulean and Elaine join us in the studio to talk bottomless brunch and death drops. And we unpack the laundromat index and the uncertainty of buying a secondhand washing machine. Rockstar principal and author of From the Ground Up, Stephen Cook, tells us what it takes to build one of our best state schools in the place of one that got bulldozed. And for Breakfasters Live, a remarkable performance from revered singer-songwriter Stephen Cummings. Melbourne's own Triple R. Basking in a post-budget glow, we're joined from Impact Economics and Policy by economist Emma Gray. Morning, Emma. Good morning. Uh, Now tell us, what were the goals as you see of this budget given the economic environment it was delivered in? So, yeah, they were really delivering this in the midst of two big opposing forces. Obviously, the government was under a lot of pressure to deliver cost of living relief, but at the same time, they can't really go and put a bunch of cash into everyone's pockets, unfortunately, because we'd all go and spend it and then we put further pressure on inflation and then the Reserve Bank would just increase interest rates even further and that would make the cost of living even worse. So that was kind of the context, a tricky balancing act of this budget. And then as a backdrop to all of that, you've also got with the increasing interest rates, that impacts government debt as well as our own personal household debt. Um, So they're trying to keep their own spending and deficit under control. And that was probably the biggest surprise of the budget for me was um, delivering a surplus. So what does that mean? That just means that this year, this financial year, the government are expecting to be bringing in more money through the door in terms of taxes and other revenue than they are expecting to spend through like income support and other um, regular spending. So that's um, a good thing because that kind of means more money in government coffers, more ability to spend. Um, It's not really happening for good reasons though. It's happening because of inflation and so that's kind of increasing certain tax takes and also because of the war in Ukraine and uh, that's limiting supply of commodities and that means that we in Australia can export our commodities for higher prices. So the I guess the Australian government bottom line has actually kind of benefited um, from that in a sense. But unfortunately, this surplus is probably short-lived um, just because there's more money coming in the door than going out for this one year doesn't mean there's no debt. There's still a lot of government debt that needs to be paid off. Um, and so that's still there and will probably return to deficits as soon as commodity mm. prices fall back again. The old difficult second surplus. <laughs> yeah, and so they have tried to um, potentially get that um that golden goose of that second surplus by making some tax reforms to try to rebalance um, that longer term, um, what's going out versus what's going in. And so um, don't worry, they haven't touched income taxes, although I think a lot of people 
did want them to touch those stage three tax cuts. Um, not this time. We might see that next budget. We'll see. Um, but the tax changes they did make, um, getting more tax out of big gas projects through some reforms to the petroleum resource rent tax. Um, so that's kind of a super profits thing. Um, reducing tax breaks on really large superannuation balances, introducing a 15% tax on large multinational businesses, um, taxing smokers more, so um, increasing the tobacco excise even further. But probably not feasible if you're a smoker to just jump over to vaping because they're also um, putting more regulations on that, um, banning disposable vapes and much more heavily regulating other vapes. So um, probably no real, not much controversy in those tax increases. So probably sensible moves there from the government to try to just be bringing a bit more in, um, in terms of revenue over the longer term. Mm. Were there any other measures that you see as being significant, if not now, then down the track? So the main um, measures were really kind of a whole suite of moderate and smaller measures trying to ease cost of living, and this is really key. And I've noticed... um, I think last night and this morning, the Treasurer is getting a lot of questions and every interviewer has been saying, oh, but won't this um, increase inflation more? And then they're also saying, oh, but you haven't really gone far enough with this support. So I think that just ties back to this really tricky balancing act. You can't do both. So what they have done with cost of living is go a bit of the way but probably not like life-changing so um, the main uh, change that I was really happy to see is increasing the rate of job seeker as well as youth allowance um, by $40 a fortnight so yeah not a li- not a life-changing amount but definitely better than the stagnation in those rates that we've had for the past few years. Um, They also acknowledged that uh, so that kind of older people will have a tougher time in the searching who are unemployed, more likely to be suffering from long-term unemployment. And so people who are older than 60 get a higher rate of job seeker. They've now brought that down to 55, Mm -hmm. saying we know that these issues start earlier. Um, But they have increased the rate of job seeker for everyone, Mm -hmm. which is great. Um, Also increasing Commonwealth rent assistance by 15%. So that's kind of for low-income earners who are in the rental market. That's $31 a fortnight. So again, not life-changing, but a good move in the right direction, also increasing um, not the rate of single parenting payment but uh, the amount of time you can receive it for. So it used to be once your youngest kid turned eight, you stop receiving it and people are like, this is a bit weird, you know, my kid still needs a lot of things after they're eight years old, so now it's after your youngest... I haven't moved out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> real leech over here. So now it's after they turn 14 and they've got a little bit more independence as opposed to, I don't know, those supposed independent nine-year-olds <laughs> yeah. who were floating around. Um, on top of all those income support kind of modest increases energy bill relief. So um, up to $500 in energy bill relief for 
pensioners, veterans, concession card holders, um, people receiving government support payments, and then also up to $650 in energy bill relief for small businesses. I think we do probably rightly so talk a lot about households and cost of living pressures on households, but that's also really starting to bite small businesses. So that energy bill relief for small businesses as well as for households. Is there any movement in aged care? Yes, there is. So um, a few months ago, the Fair Work Commission said, okay, aged care sector, um, you've got to increase your kind of award wages. So that's kind of the minimum wages everyone has to be paid. You've got to increase those wages by 15%. Uh, And... I think a few weeks ago we actually saw an aged care centre go under because they said this 15% pay rise that's going to happen on the 1st of July, we can't afford it. And so we're going to close our doors because we're not going to be able to wear that. And so the government has come in and said, okay, well, we will try and cover that 15% pay rise, Um, which I think makes sense uh, because it is a largely publicly funded sector. And so they're saying, well, instead of that 15% pay rise coming out of your existing funding, um, we're going to try and cover that. Now, 15% pay rise potentially sounds like a lot. Mm. I'm sure we'd all be pretty happy with the 15% pay rise ourselves. But I think it's just important context um, to know that aged care workers on average earn 24% less than the average Australian worker. So they're still going to be earning about 10% less than the average Australian worker. So it's not like, oh my gosh, all these aged care workers are going to be flush with cash. Again, this is a great move in the right direction, but there's still some way to go. Um, Unfortunately, there's now some concern that this might pull other workers away from other low-paid care professions like childcare. Um, and so we asked, there is some, this was announced in the October budget, there is some improvements to the childcare subsidy, making it cheaper and easier for a lot of households to access childcare from the 1st of July this year. Um, but now there's a bit of concern. Aged care workers are getting this wage improvement, which is great, but what if that just pulls people from other care sectors. So I think this is a step in the right direction and hopefully over time we'll see a bit more across the broader care sector Mm. as well. I was just going to say, and there was an unexpected boost in Medicare as well. Yes, so that was the other big move, um, trying to get at that cost of living relief. And so that's really to do with bulk billing. Mm -hmm. So there's been a big drop off in the rates of doctors who've been bulk billing. And that's really concerning, particularly while so many people are struggling with their finances. And so the government has tripled the incentive that GPs get to offer a bulk billing consultation. Um, And so they're hoping that that will assist 11.6 million more bulk billed consultations. Awesome. Now, the budget reply will be due. I'm wondering, is that just theatre? Do economists pay attention to that? And what might come up as a topic 
uh, to be for the government to be prosecuted? So it depends how much attention we're paying. I think if we were on the cusp of an election, I'd be paying a lot of attention because this would be setting the scene for potential government who might get in what their policies are going to be. That's obviously not the case this time around. So it is a bit of theatre. It's really the opposition's chance to... Um, say all the things they don't like about this budget, which um, there is a lot you can say you don't like, but I am going a bit easy on the government because, again, it's like they could go further, but then inflation and more debt, and then you could say, oh, but what about the potential impacts of this spending on inflation and debt? But then you've got um, no one would be getting any support with the cost of living. So I think uh, it does strike a decent balance there, but I'm sure um, the opposition will be trying to attack them probably on both of those fronts, even even though um, you can't really do both of those at the same time. You've got to kind of pick one or the other. Mm. Well, I'm sure there'll be ripple effects of this budget for years to come and uh, I look forward to you unpacking them all for us. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. I wonder, either of you have a favourite car chase scene from a movie, TV show? Uh, I know famously the Blues Brothers had one that was very fun mm-hmm. and comedic and exaggerated, I suppose. And then recently, maybe when I was rewatching Homicide, it <laughs> uh, uh, looks like this Australian, well, Melbourne-based cop show from the 60s and 70s was mostly just car chases, just shots <laughs> of cars driving around Melbourne. That's it. They didn't even seem to be going that fast. <laughs> They're not even going that fast. <laughs> yeah. Just this traffic can- scenes. Um, yeah, I was just actually when you mentioned that one thing that sort of sticks in my mind, and I don't know if it qualifies as a car chase scene per se, but there was a, a science fiction film called Children of Men. Do you remember this one? No. And there was like a single shot from almost the interior of the car in which this group of people enter into an ambush and then attempt to escape from it all in one. Un- uninterrupted scene and oh, so okay. it sort of really leans into that sort of the the tension that I suppose the car chase is characterised yeah. by. It's a, that's a key element yeah. of yeah, a gripping and entertaining car chase scene for sure. So it was all in like a single shot with that's the camera. Right. Wow. Similar to was it um yeah I think there's been a few instances of films which are completely yeah one take uninterrupted and this was definitely an example of that in which you're not really even allowed to breathe during the course of that sequence. Yep. But then more recently there was the opening scene of beef, I suppose which is kind of true yeah the road rage scene (laughs) absolutely yeah that is that's that's essentially that that, yeah that's absolutely a car chase scene i didn't even think of that but um yeah what about you well i was i revisited just because i was um mulling or yeah thinking about car chases yesterday i'll tell you why Mm. but i did revisit the the death proof car chase scene with the, um, Kurt Russell as the deranged stuntman. I mean, I think that goes for about 20 minutes. Um, Daniel, also, one of you mentioned that last week. 
or yes, the yeah. week before. It's insane. Or t- it's terrifying, actually. <laughs> I think it's too scary for me. It's a very tense film, isn't it? And it is. Is, is it there? Is Kurt Russell in a bar for a long chunk before this scene? Yes, yes, mm. he is. Yeah, he's stalking the girls. <laughs> so yeah, real lighthearted stuff. But I, I, I ask and was curious about your favorite car chase scenes is because you're about to learn about your new favorite oh, wow. car chase scene. Um, I experienced one yesterday. Technically, I guess that is not entirely um, accurate as there was no car or it wasn't high speed. I think the max um, limit I hit was 19 clicks. (laughs) But I was in the city um, at about like – 4.35, kind of edging on peak hour. Um, I'd been running, I'd had an appointment and I realised I had another appointment on the other side of town in 25 minutes. And then I looked at my app, I realised there was a tram in like a minute, ran and just missed um, the the 86, which, which was bolting up Burke Street. So I kind of mulled it over for a minute or so, checked when the next one was coming. It was going to get me there just too late, okay? And so I was like, I know what I'll do. I um, jumped on a knee scooter. <laughs> nice. Did you? Yes. So unlocked it. Oh, where's the app? Like clicked it, scanned the barcode and was like, I'm going to chase this tram down. If I can just get ahead of it, it's definitely <laughs> going to get some lights. Like it, It's so going to be just, fine. You just needed to get far enough that you could clear the tram with enough time to park the scooter and jump on the tram. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. So at this point, I couldn't see the tram, but in good, I was like, I feel like it's just up the hill. Bit of a slow start, went to scan the first scooter. No, it's out of action. It's charging. Run over to the next one and then I'm off. I'm burning up Burke Street. I'm up, yes, I was, yeah, cutting up through the city and then I, there's a while, that I, a few kilometres where I can't see the tram, oh. but I finally get a visual maybe like th- halfway through, 3Ks in. I was like, aha, I've got it. Yeah, a bit of weaving. A, a ray bit of light of, for our is, hero. Yeah, which is a key kind of element yeah. as well of a, a thrilling car chase is really seeing some... Um, expertise and some and impressive manoeuvres on the road. So I was really mastering that fusion of so, pedestrian and road <laughs> so Of course, there's rules. the functional element of a car chase, but there's also the visual spectacle. Exactly. You weren't, you weren't so neglecting that. Up and down ramps on the scooter, yeah. my hair's kind of blowing out of the helmet, the ill-fitting helmet. But you're really reading the flow yeah. of traffic, cars, Absolutely. the architecture. <laughs> yeah. It's all mapped in your head before you. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I'm seeing it like a game. I've never <laughs> I've never been more focused. Yeah. Like Amazing. I'm quite a flighty, flippant person. But if you saw me yesterday on that scooter, you'd go, wow, who is she? I'm riding up a fusion between pedestrian lights and traffic lights. Halfway down Smith Street, get a visual of the tram edging closer and closer but it's a slow um it's a slow chase I mean I'm hitting 19 clicks and then I'm moving up I say I'm about 100 meters from the tram towards the end and then the scooter hits its maximum radius from the city no can you believe it I can't that's all right. Grab my phone. You got to lock the helmet back onto it. You got to take a photo. And at this point, I can see. So I park up the scooter, and then this point, I see the tram. Maybe yeah, 
100 metres kind of pushing through some traffic. It's kind of gone into a single lane. I run from under... I go under a bridge. I think bridges are always dramatic, so mm. I think it's important to include that. I run under this bridge. I cut through the traffic and then I have to climb over railing. To It's a raised tram platform. So I pull myself up in the like middle of the road and climb over the railing, bang, onto the tram. I ride the tram for one stop <laughs> and I arrive right on time. Here's where the story falls flat. Because high stakes, you know, you want, like, why is she doing all of this? Um, (laughs) This is where I think the story needs work is that it was to make a yoga class. (laughs) And it was so I didn't lose $15 because there's, like, once you book into the class, if you don't turn up, I'd booked online. I see. And if I didn't turn up. I'd lose fifteen dollars. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I turned up, and I wasn't even the last there, but I was panting. I, I pretty much did a yoga class in jeans because I didn't have time to change. I think that's an incredible story and an extraordinary physical achievement that was perhaps even facilitated by the fact that you are dedicated to your yoga classes. I was. Mm. I could not be bothered with yoga when I got there. I was like, none of you understand what I've done to be here, and this class wasn't worth it. Nah. <laughs> that, that action scene, dead set, sounds like a. a a sequence paid for by the city of Melbourne. Oh, yeah, honestly, it was. And that's another thing. Like, the backdrop was lovely in a city. This is the one thing I put to you, Simon, Daniel, or maybe even the listeners. I was trying to think as well, like, what song I'd want. I'd obviously want something to play up. Like, I want it to be lighthearted and make maybe comical and not take it too seriously. But I don't know. Mm. Any kind of thoughts? Maybe you don't have to come up with an answer right now. I mean, one of my favourite sequences of all time in a film, it's the most... I think it's the most feel-good piece of cinema ever is um, Francis Ha of running course. through the city, Mon Love. I don't know, something of that kind of tone. I see. Not too sort of intense or dramatic. Yeah, something. but maybe more. That does lack a bit of drama. That is a little bit too feel-good. <laughs> but, but Birdman was a whole long sequence. Remember? Oh, and, yes. And that, that was just a single shot. Very percussive. Yeah. Yes. Definitely not something as tense as that, but, of course, it's it's incredibly important to build the tension. But, yeah, something a bit light and playful as well. To kind of really highlight and accentuate the fact that I'm on an e-scooter. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. And you stop saying about dirt. Here for Down Dirty with all the garden goss, it's the remarkably hydrated and wrinkle-free digger. Morning, digger. <laughs> I've never been called wrinkle-free. <laughs> no, How I've, are we all? Good. Yeah, excellent. Yes, excellent. Thank you. Uh, and, yeah, very intrigued by today's topic mm. because I hear a lot about it uh, and its benefits. Olive oil, it has just been used, obviously, for thousands of years in all sorts of um, you know, situations and for purposes. Obviously, in Australia, it was for the first, like, 40 years, it was thought to be only medicinal. Um, you know, the Anglo-Europeans were like, what do you mean you ingest this stuff? You know, it was all different sorts. And I was talking to a guy yesterday about it, and he's, yeah, he's originally from Lebanon. He's like, yeah... You'd be literally putting it in your hair to wash your hair with it and then putting it on your bread for dinner at the same time <laughs> with the same substance. So, yes, yeah, so many different uses. It's, and it's such an amazing plant. I, I, you know, 
as a as a horticulturist looking at design for olives, it's one of the very few plants where it can literally sit in any type of garden style you want because you can manipulate its shape and its colour tone is this neutral. You hear this in all the fancy design shows all the time. These neutral colours, literally from an Australian landscape, you can pop olive trees in, then they look like they're native. Mm. In a Japanese garden, you can clown prune them and they look like they're. Japanese mm. and obviously Mediterranean gardens and obviously originating from the Middle East into Xeriscape kind of garden. So they're just this great all-rounder. And do you – what role do they play in your life? Do you have Do you have some of your own? I don't have any of my own because I'm not a massive olive eater. Like mm. I – I eat olives, but it's not like, you know how you, know, you go to people's places and they've got the, the platter there and I won't eat a stuffed olive. I'll, I'll pick up an anchovy, a whole anchovy in <laughs> yeah. but I won't eat a, just a raw olive. I like olives in dishes, I like olives in pizzas, a good puttanesca, I love it. Um, how's your gnocchi game going, by the way? <gasps> oh, yeah, well, yeah, 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 I'll bring something <laughs> yeah, for we'll you talk. next time. <laughs> um, COVID, I, I nailed it. Oh, we did got you? It, we got to talk. All right, let's talk about this over here. Um, yep. But, like, my favourite eating of olives is a niswa sandwich. Are you familiar with a niswa? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So olive tepanade with tuna, egg, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Delicious. Is Babka still open in yes. Brunswick Street? Yeah, definitely. See if they still do it. Now, I'm talking about this was 1993 when I was eating them there, but mm-hmm. if they still do it. So I love eating them, but I don't have any at home because I just know so many people that have them. It's that sort of thing that is it's a shared tree. No one's olive tree is just theirs. Everyone benefits from it. Mm-hmm. So I... Don't feel like I have to. It's like I've got people who've got avocado trees, so I don't have them. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> and you're constantly bringing in beautiful produce. So. Yeah, we've, we've got you know we've got sixty seven odd different varieties of fruit um, that we wow. share out. But my thing's apples and pears and you know plums. So yeah, don't have them. Don't Do need the them. Trays. They're everywhere. Yep. They're bloody everywhere, which they is are. great. I love seeing them. Mm. And it's olive season now. It's harvest season. So that's you know part of the reason of talking about them today is that. Right now, there's not a hell of a lot going on in gardens. Obviously, there's a bit of Mm. autumn colour coming down. Um, But as far as fruiting goes, they're sitting on their own. So, yeah, it's exciting. I have two olive trees. So, one, let's strike a deal, (laughs) (laughs) what you've got. And two, yeah, so I've never kind of harvested or picked them. I don't really know much about it. Ah, Now's the time. Now's the time. So, obviously, you can pick olives green. Mm. um, And, yes, all olives do eventually go dark red, black. Mm. Um, Some people are like, oh, are they different varieties? They do all go black eventually if you just leave them on the tree. But picking green is when you're going to get the most oil from most of the varieties. So, hence, you know, now you might have part of your tree that will be fully ripe and black and some green. It all depends on variety. And, you know, there's over... Um, 100 different varieties grown in Australia. So it's, you know, there's thousands worldwide, but 100 in Australia. So who knows what you're going to have. You might have something really rare because mm. obviously most of the trees um, in the older suburbs, especially in Melbourne or, you know, or Sydney, were bought over during, you know, the great migrations of the 50s, 60s and 70s. So there could be some really obscure things out there. I'd love to know. Hmm. Speaking of obscure, we have some curly questions for you. Uh, I bought a few square metres of soil months ago. Unfortunately, the pH alkalinity is super high, 8.5. I've been using sulphur to try and lower it as well as trying to grow broad beans in it as green manure. Why would it be so high and is there anything else I can do to lower pH? Yeah, so that that is always a problem. So obviously the compost and soils that you buy from landscape yards um, come from all of our green waste and all sorts of stuff. So mixed materials, they never measure the pH of the soil. Just quickly, pH of the soil uh, dictates the uptake of certain nutrients at certain times. At 8.5, 
the nutrient that makes plants flower is not available. So your broad beans will never flower. So good that you're growing them as a green manure because it's never going to flower. Sulfur is good. So adding sulfur to it will work, but it's very slow. You'll move one point about every three years. It'll t- it literally will take that long. Yeah. Yeah. So to, as a quicker correction is to actually go around and buy the little pH kit and go around to other soil yards and test their samples before you buy them. Nothing sus. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do it all the time. Yeah. Um, they find it interesting. Cause <laughs> on, on the way out, they ask you what was it because they get a new oh. batch every week. They don't know what it is. Mm. Everything's changing every week. So if you can find something that's highly acidic and then blend it with the alkaline, you'll end somewhere at neutral. Excellent. That's excellent advice as always. There's another um, caller here who is mentioning a previous house owner put down three layers of black plastic in the garden and apart from compacting the soil and turning the worms grey, could it be the cause of fungal infections in my native shrubs? Absolutely, yeah. The soil is sweating and not breathing. Mm. Um, soil is a living, breathing thing. So without, yeah, without that air, that's what's causing the fungal issues. Three layers, that's a pain in the arse. <laughs> You're going to have to have a working bee for that one. <laughs> Do you have any intel on bitterness in relation to olives? Um, yeah, it's all... Uh, what's the, the chemical in it is... Oleoropin and phenols, and that's what causes the bitterness in all different olives, and they have different percentages of that. Um, and that's why we have to brine them. So brining them and bleeding them and all those kind of things is what leaches those bitterness out. But that's also where the nutrition is. So, you know. Excellent. We have another um, text mentioning about series accepting donations of olives to be processed into goods, and they say Onya series. And it was actually a coincidence because we were going to talk to you about an event which is happening there as well. That's right, yeah. So 21st of May is the Olives to Oil Festival at Ceres in Brunswick, just around the corner here. So it is people who have all sorts of olives but don't have the facilities or equipment to do the oil pressing. So if you look on the series website, there's four different drop-off locations. So get onto the website and you book a drop-off. And so there's Brunswick, Preston, Oakley and Newport, for memory. Drop off your olives and then head on down to the Olive Festival on the 21st of May between 11 and 4. And there's pruning demonstrations, all different sorts of stuff. It's everything to do with olives. So it's in <laughs> conjunction with 3000 Acres, who are an organisation who look at you know, the greater community and how we can use public spaces for growing food. And then the whole idea is after the festival, in about three weeks' time, once everything is pressed, you then return back to where you dropped off your olives and you collect your olive oil. Amazing. Wow. And so, that, yeah, great community event. It does, and it speaks to that sort of that shared communal aspect of, of olives that you were talking about before as well. Yeah, that, because they're great croppers. They produce a hell of a lot of fruit, but it's, you know, being a droop, and a droop's a fruit with a, like one stone in the middle, they're difficult to handle and difficult to do. So... Not everyone's got the equipment, so great community initiative. Can I ask a deeply layman's question about olive virginity? <laughs> Can you unpack some of that for me? Olive virginity. Well, oh, oh, so there's three types of oils. So you've got your your you know your extra virgin, which is the first press, and then you've got your virgin oil, and then you've just got your standard olive oil. So it's about how how fresh the fruit was. So they give it one squeeze essentially and then another squeeze, and then the last squeeze. So that's Ooh. how you get the... And what's the general ratio of, like, how many kilos of olives to, to oil? Usually, just depending on variety, but somewhere between 8 to 10 kilos of olives to get one litre of oil. Okay. And any quick, like, pruning tips as okay. well? Um, so, you know, harvest season, just so you can shake, but if you look first, look at the wood of what the olive is sitting on right now, mm-hmm. out on the tips... Essentially, if you prune the olive off, mm. the, the new growth that comes from that is what will produce the fruit 
in 18 months' time. Okay. So it fruits on one-year-old growth. Okay. So if you do a hedge and you do a hedge every year, you'll never get olives. You've got to thin it like a hairdresser. Okay. <laughs> I think I get it. So it fruits on, one, on last year's new growth. Okay. Write that one down and sit on that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It fruits on last year's new growth. Amazing. How complex does pressing get? Ah, it's, it's too complicated for me and I don't have the attention span to do it. I love seeing it done and I'll go and watch for about 20 minutes and then I'll go and figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was also a question about figs. Now is now a good time to prune my fig tree? Um, if the leaves are dropped, don't prune any of your deciduous fruit trees until they've dropped. It's too late to do summer pruning techniques and it's too early to do winter pruning techniques, mm. so hold until all the leaves are gone. Well, there's lots of olive news around town. There might be an event in West Footscray as well. Uh, but this Sunday, 21st of May, it's 11am to 4pm, Community Olive Festival at Ceres, Brunswick East. Would you? How much would you drop off? What's the bare minimum, do you think, to drop off? Uh, well, if you want to get a litre, it would be 10 kilos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know. Have a crack. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're bound to know someone and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to start some shit here. But there's a, um, there's a lot of you know, trees wild around. Yeah. trees hanging around over fences and all different sorts of stuff. I don't think you'd go. Dicker says it's okay. Yeah. yeah. There's well, a if lot it's hanging of... over a fence, it's, yeah, it's free game. There's a lot of nature strips as well, I find. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So that'll be the person, they'll be looking through the window at you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just quickly, what are your top three communal trees? Um if you go down to Darabin Parklands, mm-hmm. there's a few really old gems, Olia Europa, down there. Okay. okay. All right. Watch Great out. Great tip. All right. It's Olives to Oil that's taking place uh, at Ceres this Sunday, 21st of May. Uh, Digger, thank you, as always, for all your expertise. Pleasure. Triple R. Miss First Nation and recently crowned Supreme Queen Cerulean plus Noongar drag queen Elaine Open are combining their considerable and fabulous forces as hosts of the Bottomless Drag Brunch this weekend at Mabu Mabu and Fed Square as part of the Boy Festival. It's the first ever time ever drag extravaganza that promises indulgence, mimosas and filth. And to tell us about <laughs> this day of decadence, the performers join us now. Welcome both of you to Breakfasters. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Hi. Hey. <laughs> it's me, Cerulean. <laughs> it's me, Elaine, girl. <laughs> now, how far back do you two go? Oh, oh back as our ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> um, a few years. It's our first time working together, really. Yeah, yeah. I've um, I moved uh, to Nam, uh, Melbourne in like mid 2018. So Levi, uh, sorry, Elaine. <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> Elaine was like one of the yeah one of the first like people that I met when I moved down here, which is cool. Awesome. And you've been busy this year in Boy together as well, haven't you? Very busy. We just got off um, doing a run of uh, Luvium done by another queer artist, Stone Motherless Cole. Um, over the weekend, so Can we you were tell doing. Us, yeah, about that experience. Long, <laughs> it was long, but it was an amazing performance. Um, talking about decolonizations, first arts, first nations arts, and doing it from a queer perspective. And you know, we've got our Cerulean was playing our doctor and singing for us and stuff. And I was <laughs> one of the automaton clowns. So amazing. it was amazing. 
Yeah, and my character was like this uh, this doctor that was looking after all of the people on this ship. It was like very like biopunk, futuristic kind of vibes. And my character, I didn't even know what to do the voice. It was like, oh yeah. <laughs> it was like, and I had to sing a song in that voice. So yeah, it's demanding. <laughs> the Aritzen's idea. Yeah. You should do that. No, no. I'm not doing that. <laughs> what does it mean to be Crown Supreme Queen? Oh, um, it means a lot, I think, um, to be crowned, like, you know, to represent, like, a queer mob, um, our, like, you know, First Nations um, communities. Like, I feel like, um, like, I feel like we're kind of like superheroes in a way, um, like, you know, queer superheroes um, doing it, like, you know, for the community. And, like, it's, it really is my mission to, like, you know, bring black joy and like queer joy to our communities and you know really fill fill that up fill yeah. up the cup I yeah, guess, yeah. congratulations on the title but i did hear off air elaine you were saying you're coming for the you're coming for the crown oh, are it's you? 2024 <laughs> i'm coming for it straight out i'm there it's reading some reviews of the night sounds phenomenal people are out of their chairs can you tell us a little bit about what it felt like yeah no it felt it felt amazing it was like um yeah because we on the final night it went over like four days we had a uh we had a, like a photography kind of heat like i guess like four different heats a photography heat we had a talent heat and we had like a costume national costume heat and the final night was like the night where we got to bring ourselves and what we do as like drag artists to you know finally put that on a a, like on show and yeah it just felt amazing like the crowd the energy was was amazing was elaine were you there i was there i actually broke glasses we nearly (laughs) we chipped over a table when cerulean won like (laughs) anyone from nam was there we were screaming the loudest and we basically broke our voices. So <laughs> the 10-hour drive home, I was like, I'm not talking to no, 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 no voice, no more. It was so awesome. surreal. It was amazing. Yeah, it was very magical. Are no. you two foodies? I mean, Mabu Mabu's special. What's, what's your relationship with food? I ain't this size for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Perth, so we don't have food there. <laughs> we have mining towns and beer. That's what we have. So over here, I'm eating out constantly and finding new places. So... Amazing. I can't wait to eat that pumpkin damper and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, myself, I'm actually vegan, but when it comes to Mabu Mabu, you know, I might just. Uh, Vince rolls. Get something, yeah, get something a bit different. No one saw. <laughs> <something> not vegan. <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you have free reign? Is it going to be chaos? What do you anticipate? Complete chaos. <laughs> If everyone knows Elaine, it's always chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Elaine's bringing a little bit of, like, you know, churchiness. You know, she used to be in the church, so she wants to bring a little church back. Nice. Um, yeah. Will Elaine be cutting anyone off despite it being bottomless brunch? <laughs> oh, I will. I will cut you off. If there is one bottle of tequila left, that's mine. Yeah. And I might share with Cerulean, but you will be cutting. <laughs> <laughs> How big does brunch loom in an artist's life? Or oh, your lives? Oh. Oh. Well, I I, I mean really indulging in the day. It's fun, isn't it? I love a brunch on a Saturday. Like, mm. don't get me wrong, anyone knows me. I'm at like a certain restaurant in Collingwood on a Saturday eating chicken and waffles. <laughs> <laughs> and then I spike my lemonade with that vodka <laughs> through the afternoon with this spiked lemonade. Yeah. Like, I don't I think that's every gay person, every gay community like 
brunch is life. Mm. We created brunch. Is like, that so? I believe it. <laughs> Sex in the City didn't do it. Yeah. They took it from us, yeah. so we're claiming it back. Oh, it's yeah. going to be such a beautiful celebration. Of course, incredible food, as you say, like a, a sense and a spirit of, of yeah, gathering relaxation. But I suppose also there will be some performances as part of the event as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to put on a bit of a show with it as well. Um, we're, we're both going to be hosting the the brunch. And yeah, it's like, it's a really fun vibe. I love performing in spaces that aren't stages because it kind of, you get to like look people in the eye and really like <laughs> play around with people. And it's, it's honestly really, really fun. Excellent. Yeah. I like to intimidate some people, especially like... <laughs> You know, you get the wives that bring their straight husbands and stuff in mm. there, and they're like, he's like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and then she's kind of like, he doesn't want to be here. Do something. <laughs> and then you just kind of like go and then like just stroke his neck or something. It's like, hi, daddy. <laughs> and then like, he's just like, oh, God, get me out of here. Do you know, can you read when you can, when someone's maybe flexible, like that, um, don't take that the wrong way, when people, when you might turn someone who seems resistant, but it's like, I've got you. Oh, no, definitely. I. I live for it. <laughs> I, I used to do drag bingos and drag um, trivias all up and down the Pilbara region in WA. So we get the minors and stuff. Mm. Oh, it's so fun doing them. Because yeah. they're just like, oh, God, Vanessa, why did you bring me to this place? <laughs> and they look over me and they're like, what do you want? I'm like, yeah, you come over here. I'm going to dance with you. And then I'm stuck dancing with them for like five minutes and they're like a dead weight. <laughs> they're like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> so I'm going to find someone and do that. Maybe the mayor's husband or something. <laughs> Get up here, man. <laughs> That's why. What are the. Uh, they wearing high vis during these shows ever? Back when you were doing that? Oh, yeah. I'd had some. I had some blokes that would get straight off the mines and, like, you know, pop home and they'd be cracking a beer and stuff. And their wives are like, get up, let's go. <laughs> You're driving and we're going to this brunch, me and the girls. <sighs> so I'd have boys in high vis. I'd had, I've had boys that um, literally got off the the van and literally just walked in and they thought it was like the pub, but it's like, not the pub tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see the scene growing as well? Like obviously with like um, Miss First Nations and stuff like that, do you feel like there's more kind of like First Nations drag performers coming out, performing, kind of showing their talents? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, like um, there's like a group of us, like the Motherless House, like a group of First Nations performers and like a few others sprinkled about that were like, you know, I, I feel like it's one of my goals as well this year is to, you know, brought some babies, yeah. some First Nations babies as well to really, I guess, saturate the scene a little, little bit more with our First Nations um, drag artists. Yeah, Amazing. What do you see? You mentioned the stage and you like not having a stage sometimes. What What is it about that, being on the floor with everyone? Um, I Well, I like, I, I like both, but they're very different. Like the vibe that you get is very different. On the stage, you can kind of feel disconnected, but you can still connect with people through eyes. But when it's like when you're running around, like people are like dancing with you, you're like, you know, they're vibing with you and you can kind of just like look directly into their eyes while you're, while you're performing to them. And it's just, it just brings me so much more of a joy and gives me more energy, you yeah. know, in the same way that a crowd roars, like a single person can give me that energy as well. Well, be careful as well, though, in Mabu Mabu, no death drops with hot plates or knives behind you. I (laughs) actually heard that last week when Cerulean performed at Mabu Mabu. She, um, you hosted with Queen Kong and I heard she death dropped in there in the small space in Mabu Mabu and I was like, 
I don't know how she done that. <laughs> oh, honestly, Mabu Mabu, like, like in the in the little area, cause like like the place is like filled with tables and stuff. And there's like a little area, and I, like I don't know how she managed to like do a jump split, Whoa. a cartwheel. Like a dip, and I was like, "How? I don't know how she managed to do that." And I'm gonna try it this time. Oh, so I might break something, but I'll have the ice pack ready for you. Yeah. This is gonna be fun and possibly dangerous. So, Cerulean and Elaine opener hosting a, the Mabu Mabu Bottomless Drag Brunch at Yerimboy. It's Saturday, 13th of May, two to four p.m. at Mabu Mabu. Head to yerimboy.com.au. Are you gonna prepare? Is there anything? You have to pre- prepare. Shave. <laughs> you sounds shave like, everything. It sounds like you should both stretch as well. If yes. What you're planning? Yes, I need to stretch so bad. All right. Well, Cerulean and Elaine open. Thanks so much, and great pleasure to have you in studio. Thank you Thank so you. much. Triple R. I've had that Alanis Morissette's song stuck in my head ever since you referenced it yesterday. Yeah, right. Daniel, in regards to the thieves um, in Peru who accidentally stole only all, yeah, just all. only the right foot of a bunch of sneakers, <laughs> which I really feel for them. I hope they can make it make it work. I mean, you put in all the work, you organise yeah. to rub a store, <laughs> then these little details get you so... Keep at it. Um, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to because th- I presume the shoes returned to their rightful owner because they were had... caught. Oh, were they definitely caught? I got the well. That's why. That's why we know that. Um, well, no, no, not necessarily. Oh, they, they weren't caught because they had all of the. I mean, they obviously have um, evidence, or yeah, know that they were broken into. Yeah, the crime was committed. The crime was committed. In my mind. They weren't caught. In your mind, they were. Yeah, what wow, I'm an optimist. You're a pessimist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're you because yeah. So you're an optimist because not really. But no, yeah. no, no. But they're 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 in your head. They're on the run. They're having fun. They're having a laugh. They've got the they've got all the shoes, <laughs> and you know what? They'll maybe try sell them anyway. Yeah. Oh, imagine. Yeah, they'll box them up and sell them out the back of a car and then it'll just be a ripple effect and then slowly just people will kind of surface into the community with two right shoes. Someone else's problem. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's what's been going through my mind. I'm glad we cleared that up. But, um, yeah, 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife was going through my head yesterday. Similar, not 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 even close to a similar situation, but just got me thinking I've been speaking about how I we – um, didn't have enough close horses in my house. It was like if you wanted to be have a bit of real estate on a close horse, you had to be up at dawn. You had to be doing the wash washing if you wanted to kind of to get in there and maximise like a lovely sunny day. Anyway, I went on a mission. I have obtained several clothes horses. So from one end to the other. Yeah, there are so many. Also with the help of one listener, thank you, Jayan, if you're listening. A huge clothes horse. I think you both saw a picture of it. Incredible. Like to, I did washing last week and it looked like an art installation <laughs> yes. in the living room. It looked like we'd bumped in. <laughs> so it is all great on that front. If anything, my housemates have like, you've gone too far. Like I can wash all of my things at once now. But... 10,000 spoons, well, you need, need is a knife. Our washing machine has since broken. I see what you mean. I see the correlation. And it's not really, <laughs> the irony doesn't really work as well because it is kind of like 
but it's the certainly... washing machine is the main bit. That, that yeah. is what you do. Well, I remember really need, hearing someone still... totally discuss the original Alanis Morissette song as less of a series of ironies and more of a series of unfortunate and, yeah, circumstances. And You're certainly, right. this is an unfortunate circumstance that could fit within a lyric. Yeah. I think it's ironic. You do, oh, yeah. Well, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Uh, a bit because uh, why is it ironic? Well, because you've gone through this palaver yeah. of obtaining something to dry the clothes and now you can't even get them wet. Yeah, you're right. You, yeah, there we it's, are. It's still, well, it still hits the code. I suppose it's like it would be more ironic, ironic if it's just like that it's quite a simple, easy, obtainable thing that you need. Does that kind of make it work more like? I don't think that features okay. in, the, in the classification of irony. <laughs> <laughs> the ease with which the solution can be resolved. Oh, yeah. But I love your commitment to dis- discovering and uncovering further irony in the situation. Yeah, so that's where I'm at. So I guess – so I'm deep into Facebook Marketplace. There is no consistency with the pricing of washing machines out there. It is wild. I can imagine this. Factors. It's incredibly overwhelming. I've knuckled down and I did some research yesterday, so I feel like I've got a bit more of a handle on it. But you've got to be very quick. But, yeah, I mean, people are pricing them from, you know, $500 and then you've got someone else selling a similar one for $65. It's wild, the pricing. You can take a car for a test drive. Can you do a, you know, a trial wash? Oh, yeah. Because washing machines can, like, shake and they are nuts. They dominate the whole house. Yeah, it's like adopting a pet (laughs) in some ways. It's like it's spirit. It's going to be a real energy in the house. I feel like, and I've had to kind of, I think I've just had to come to terms with the fact that it is just taking a bit of a, a stab in the dark. I mean, I'll ask if I can come over, share a meal, then we do a load of tea towels, <laughs> yeah. get to know the machine and the noises that it makes. I don't know. And could I ask also, there's definitely a, a firm commitment from your household to repurchasing a new washing machine as opposed to mm. investigating sort of laundromats or hand washing? Well, or... there is a laundromat yes. down the road from our place which is definitely an option for the short term Mm. i think cost wise it's more economical for us to buy the machine like i mentioned there is some great deals out there to be had you've just got to be i've got to be patrolling yes i probably have to be online during the show no (laughs) but um yeah but i am excited about getting amongst the laundromat scene i feel like good things happen in a laundromat they can do. Yeah. The musical selection at My Beautiful Laundrette on uh, Brunswick Street was always very enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. I feel like they're, it's often a feature as well in, like, TV shows and movies. Well, There's real lots of meet-cutes in laundromats and absolutely. stuff like that. So I look forward to, you know, <laughs> meeting some life-changing people yeah. over the next couple of days. And then, who knows, maybe down the track you can have rain on your wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Talking media at 6.45 and, Nat, you've been in your clothes horsing mm-hmm. um, hijinks. <laughs> yes. And the, I think there's a straight line between your clothes horse and the housing crisis. Oh, yeah. Uh, Naturally. <laughs> so uh, during the speech, uh, Jim, uh, his budget speech, Jim Chalmers said, for too long secure affordable housing has been out of reach for too many Australians. So it's top of mind for everyone. Now, Michael Bachelard in... Uh, April, or very late April, just about two weeks ago, mm. had a feature that we didn't talk about in The Age uh, about the laundromat index. Oh. Oh, I'm fascinated. Uh, and what it says about Brunswick's housing debate. Okay. And so 
there's this business owner who's looking to open a laundromat in Brunswick and did research and wrote a computer program and combed through census data for streets with high numbers of renters and students and young professionals and a low number of laundromats. And it spat out this perfect address and they had a monopoly on it. But as the as they moved towards opening, there were three other laundromats suddenly popped up in the area. Wow. Okay. So this is around – this is in East Brunswick and uh, Sean said it was crazy and this now this business is apparently one of almost 15 in the area serving people he describes as space poor and time poor. <laughs> Interesting. Space poor so time poor, yep. f- 15 laundromats in a – in a, in a tiny area and mm. apparently it represents an explosion in medium to high density living over the last decade. So we have in, from the 2021 census, it shows that there were nearly 12,000 apartments in Brunswick, which mm-hmm. is t- practically twice the amount from 10 years ago. Yep. And 36% of the suburbs population lives in apartments compared with the Victorian average of 12%. So, uh, and another 25% in Brunswick live in townhouses and terrace houses. And it's not just Brunswick, obviously happens in lots of jurisdictions. The city of Yarra has almost doubled its number of apartments since 2011. And the state government has a Plan Melbourne document, which suggests that the, we need more. There'll be more. Yeah, we need more housing in the inner suburbs to accommodate the city's expanding population. Of course, individual councils are pushing back against development, which is uh, what practically inevitably happens. And there's apparently we have NIMBY, which is not in my backyard. Yeah. And now we have YIMBY, apparently. So, yes, in my backyard. People want more housing. I mean, there's a block near me that's gone up. Then I don't think any of the people have access to parking, which is a... Issue. Oh, huge issue. Mm. Uh, So, and the idea is that, so there will be councils saying, well, hey, what if your life changes and you can't use public transport to get to your new job Mm. and that sort of thing? Yeah. We would get so many calls at council about parking and there was a really interesting, um, like, detail in the fine print that you were not eligible for a parking permit if you're... um, apartment or house was built after 2014 or something like that. So it's on the developer to um, provide off-street parking Mm. and a lot of people don't look into that. Yeah. Heads up. So there are construction companies that are building affordable housing Mm. and they're getting rejected Mm. or or they'll say, no, you can't have seven floors, you can only have six. And they say, well, now it's no longer sustainable. And so... For us to build. And so all of this is going on Mm -hmm. in different councils, but it's having an effect on laundromats where... Yeah. So do we think we have enough laundromats at the moment? Because this guy sounds like he had his kind of opportunity to clean up. Yeah. Well, if there's 15 in a high-density area, that's not... That's pretty good. There's apparently... Uh, This expert, well, he's an expert in laundromats now, he says that... So a large proportion of the customers are apartment dwellers. They don't want soggy washing on racks no. clogging up their lounge room or mm-hmm. their tiny balcony who have no washing machine or dry and some people manage to squeeze out a family of four in about one hour and 15 minutes and that's you done for the week. Yeah. Because I'd imagine you'd at least want one day without a clothes horse in your sight. Definitely. I mean, sheet, like sheet day, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly, sheet day. It's, you know, 
all over. Like it would be tricky with the whole family. Um, and then we yeah. have the kind of the tale of two cities situation. Mm. We have the bloke in Latrobe Street yesterday. I'm not sure if you saw who had his McLaren craned up to his new penthouse. What's a oh a car? <laughs> yes, I did see a picture of this. Lifted up. Yeah. So he's a tech businessman investor and so traffic stopped because he lifted his $3 million McLaren Center GTR into the 57th to 58th levels of his $39 million investment in the Sapphire building near Carlton Gardens. So it's on permanent display at that level. So it's like Ferris Bueller's day off in reverse. (laughs) Oh. So he, he said, it's going to sit in the lounge room. I want to be the first thing you see when you walk into the penthouse. Well, you'd Where's hope he going to put his clothes horse? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you'll see a car overlooking all of Melbourne. He says he can't drive it anyway. It's a race car and you can't register it in Australia. Yes. And he said it's sitting collecting dusk, so I might as well turn it into an art piece. Wow. Sounds we- like a cool guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, also there was, I thought, an interesting uh, response to your clothes horse situation yeah. as well about online reviews. Oh, indeed. Yes, that's right. Uh, which was that people tend to leave. If you're, oh, if you're buying a washing machine, mm. don't look into reviews or they're not necessarily a perfect guide. No. Because why? Because only unhappy people write reviews. Yeah, it's true. I've, I think I've – I don't think I've ever written a review, but I've only thought about writing them when I've been in a complete state of rage. So they've got a, <laughs> a, a point there. That's yeah. so funny. I've got five Google reviews published and all of them are five stars. Oh, well, that does not <laughs> surprise me. Or <laughs> I so love that, though. But apparently That's nice. even though I've only submitted a very limited number, I'm in like – Twenty percent on Google reviews. What does that mean? Does that mean that people defer to your review? I don't actually know. I've never looked into it. I think I, I always sort of took it as a, a notification. It was prompting you for further action. You know, to kind of main, uh, maintain activity. And they sphere. saw those stars and they wanted you to keep on writing. Yeah. And so whenever I leave certain places, they're like, "Oh, how was it?" And <laughs> I am often motivated to leave positive reviews. Do you do like a tagline? No, but yeah, you have the opportunity to do a headline. But I think I've reviewed like my dentists, yep. a cafe that I go to in Sydney, and there's a couple of local sandwich. And do you, are well. they genuine? If you don't have the sense that you want to give them five stars, will you review them? Probably not. I feel like I'm yep. more inclined to leave a review when I'm feeling ecstatic about the experience. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So there is weight to your reviews. 100%. You're not just giving them away. Oh, certainly not. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I've reviewed uh, – going to more barbers or hairdressers that ask me for reviews, mm. which is usually when you walk out, that's the end of the transaction. Yeah. But they're asking for reviews. Anyway, I wrote a review for a real estate agent because yeah, they asked me to and occasionally I get alerts that it's been really helpful oh, to people. Oh, well, there you go. That's oh, wonderful. Well, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, a follow-up on the shoe people. You're right. So they're still at large. Yes, fantastic With news. all of these shoes. Mm. So they've got 200 of them they were. But I think the reason why um, – I suspected that, and this happened a week ago, but there is no update. Yeah. Uh, the the reason why I th- suspect they'd be caught is because the local police chief said that with the footage and the fingerprints, we will be able to locate these individuals. Okay, yeah. So, look, it just could be absolute, you know, that could be spin and they're absolutely on the loose and An they'll never be found. Threat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. 
In 2006, Albert Park College saw its buildings bulldozed after a dramatic loss in confidence caused enrolments to plummet, resulting in only 6% of local families choosing the school. Fast forward to 2021 and the reopened institution has become a beacon of education to be voted Australian School of the Year. It's a trajectory documented in the new book, From the Ground Up, How Community with a Vision and a Principle with a Purpose Created a Thriving State School. It's by Stephen Stephen Cook, who has over four decades of service as a public school teacher and to tell us about APC's fortunes turning around and the leadership involved, the Albert Park College principal joins us now. Stephen, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, uh, yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, it's you've been through the ringer, haven't you, in the past? You've been at the ground floor of education. It's, it's not easy to turn around a school. Uh, tell us how things like this can go wrong. I'm <laughs> <laughs> starting with it. The challenges, I guess. Mm. Um, look, I think if you don't listen to what your community really needs, what they really um, desire, then you get yourself into a world of pain. So so I think it's an important first step. It's, it's critical that you walk your community, you listen carefully to what their needs and concerns are and that, um, and that your school really reflects what your community stands for. And what was Albert Park College like in 2006? Well, I think it's fair to say that it was a, a failed school. It was uh, deeply riven and uh, the local community had abandoned the school. Uh, uh, less than 6% of the local students attended the school. Mm. And it, it strikes me that mediocrity is a theme that runs through, maybe pushing back against it, the uh, how it can maybe slip in and set a rot. What's your approach to excellence in education and mediocrity as a rule? Well, I think um, from day one, it was, I guess it was almost in our DNA, a focus, an absolute focus on creating what we, what we would call a culture of excellence. And that, that's really aspiring to be the very best that you can be across the board, whether it's the, uh, the physical uh, build itself or in your day-to-day practice, in your approach to teaching and learning, uh, just, just demonstrably being uh, focused and passionate about being the very best that you can be. Mm. Can I ask, because you know, you say in your book you did, you had extensive consultation with the community um, in the lead up to kind of rebuilding the school, and you kind of had you arrived at your philosophy, I guess, of this approach to excellence. Like, what is then once you have that in place? Like, what are some of the first things that you did, or you felt was most important to enact? Look, I think underpinning everything are your your core. Your core values, your core beliefs. That uh, um, when you stand in front of a group of people, it has to really resonate. It has to feel authentic to you and to and to the people that you're speaking to. And so, number one is getting your, you know, really being clear about what your values are and being able to express that and share that with uh, other people. Um, and and you know, if it's for example around positivity, is a, is a core value for us. Really being having that positive can-do attitude is really uh, really critical. Um, um, even symbolic issues are really important, like the um, attention and detail you put into a school uniform, how you uh, physically present the building. We finish, we fill our school, for example, with beautiful art and sculpture. Um, so, so a culture of excellence is not just about attitudes; it's about how you actually physically and and, and visually present the school to your community. Mm. Having done the hard yards, are there any th- actions that you've implemented? that you think can map on to other environments and you'd like to to see popularised? 
well, obviously, we published the book because we think there's a message beyond our school context. We think this could be applied um, across any school, of, uh, not only in Australia, but globally. I think there are many elements that can be shared. Um, uh, well, a good example is our approach to, to well-being, for example, which is a positive psychology model. So it's looking at how do you, how do you um, actually build resilience um, into our into our youth, into young young men and women, and uh, and how do you how do you make them uh, more able to cope and survive in our world? So think of a really proactive and positive model that can be applied across every school in Australia. It's sort of our approach, if you like. So we uh, we really think deeply about what we want to be, and we implement it across the entire college, and we think about um, how it might be applied beyond um, our own community. Obviously, with everything you're talking about, your approach to education, the philosophy of teaching, teachers would be at the core of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have like a, an approach when it comes to recruiting and hiring teachers or process or thoughts around that? There's a, there's a chapter in the book about it's who you hire, you know, mm. and, I, and I think this is really absolutely critical. There's no more important people in a school than the staff themselves mm -hmm. you know we have to really invest heavily in them um, even when we recruit we look for we look for um, that there is a really good alignment between our school values and their personal values so for example we're passionate about the environment environmental awareness so so we like to hear from people that we're hiring that we share that same passion then you've got good alignment to uh, to begin with um, secondly we invest heavily in our professional growth and professional Professional development of our staff. This is on a weekly basis, but also, oh, for example, next weekend we have a two-day residential conference. We take every single person with us, and uh, and indeed the theme of that conference is around building a culture of excellence. So, so investing heavily in the professional development and growth of your staff, um, selecting people who have uh, their real alignment in values, and caring deeply about them. Mm. You know, so you create a almost family environment. I guess is really important as well. And is it true that Families want to send kids to their local school. They don't really want to ship them off to a. Oh, absolutely! Mm. You know, think of the think of the advantages that that idea that you can you can walk or cycle to school. That um, on the weekends every family is interconnected. You know where your kids are at any given time, um, and it's um, it's just such a it's such a wonderful model. And I really I, I'm pretty passionate about this. That if we can bring our communities together, if we can get every everyone within our community all working together to create great public schools. I mean, it's such a, it's such a wonderful outcome. I've, I've had that experience in two different settings and it really works and it's, uh, it makes a, a powerful difference. I mean, the buildings were raised. Is there something liberating about being able to start from the ground, as you say, as opposed to turning a ship around mm. with maybe some resistance? There, there are some advantages. It's certainly liberating because you really start with nothing. You know, you know the school does not have a name, an identity, a website. or You are absolutely starting from scratch. So that's a wonderful and invigorating challenge. And you can um, um, establish those base level beliefs and values and vision and live it from day one. Um, it works the other way too. There's an enormous amount of, um, I guess, pressure plus responsibility that when you stand up in front of a group of people and you promise to deliver in a particular way, you really need to, to act on that and uh, uh, otherwise you lack authenticity. And mm. uh, so in a way it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful pressure to have and it's, it's great to see it grow and develop and unfold over time.
You mentioned about subjects becoming less intellectual and maybe dumbing down. What are the what are the traps? Maybe the well-meaning traps that can lead to a slide. Well, I think um, you know, as educators, we're here to help all students, and obviously, in any given classroom, the most obvious students that need are those that need um, more support, perhaps in the literacy and numeracy area. But if I think, if we think more broadly about the sort of society we want. And we want a, you know, a clever, innovative, creative society. They're the skills we really need to inculcate in our students. And I think we have too much emphasis on, on base-level literacy and numeracy, not enough on the intellectual capacity of our citizens. And uh, it's always been my experience that when you, when you uh, raise the bar on challenge... You get better results, better connection, better commitment from students. It's a much more powerful model. So we've always pushed into that space, um, you know, in the way we develop our curriculum and the programs that we run. Everything we do, we attempt to be innovative, creative, new, challenging, always pushing the boundaries for, for our students. And I think that really works. And with technology as well, that's something you're passionate with, moving with the times. Wondering at what kind of conversations happening with teachers around chat GPT and everything. And AI and all of that. Such an interesting space. When we opened in 2011, they had just released the iPad. That, was, yeah. that, that in its in its wow. seems, seems <laughs> makes me feel a little old, doesn't it? But uh, but the but if you put that into context, you know that uh, how quickly technology is changing and how and how essential it is to our day to day life. Whether you're ploughing a field or running a, a radio station, um, I think we're crazy to uh, to do anything but embrace the use of technology and explore everything that it can offer for us and sure, sure, we need to be careful about how we use it, we need to educate our students about how to use it effectively, I understand that, but we need to embrace it because you simply won't have a job if you if you don't move with uh, where technology is going. So it's a really interesting, really important space. Perhaps the difference is, and I reference the iPad, it seems like uh, the technology is moving every two to three years. It's almost every two to three months now. Mm. So it's a big challenge for, for educators, but an important one to meet. What's the most controversial creative endeavour or maybe ambition that you've mm. maybe put out as a thought balloon that's received pushback? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting that, um, for example, we have a very strong uh, focus on um, the environment, and so you know, should schools be exploring these sort of great, you know, is great, is it an ethical issue? Is it, you know, for us, it's the single most important um, issue on the planet, and we need our kids to understand it and respond to it, and uh, and do that in a really intelligent way, because it's uh, we can talk about you know the sharp tools of change here, you know building up costs uh, for power, for example, or, or legislation. But it's really through education will make it the, the difference. So uh, that's, that's one area. Well, that doesn't that sound controversial. What about, what about putting kids in high street shop fronts? Well, yeah, we have, we have, we have an unusual model in, in the sense that we're not constricted by the four walls of the school. We have multiple campuses, including one on a, on a pier, uh, which is, happens to be the most photographed spot in Melbourne. So that's, that where, idea, that's where I would have preferred the principal to be when I was <laughs> right down the end. Well, you know, it's got a, there's a great view from that space, so I wouldn't I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't mind being placed on the pier myself. But um, 
But uh, that idea that kids move and, and walk across their community, they're part of their community, they're integral to the community, is really, um, strangely enough, can be controversial, but in fact it really works mm. because it's so visible and... Um, and they give so much back. You know, we've got to remember that uh, they're the sons and daughters of the ratepayers of that community, and they're the future. So we need to we need to make sure they feel like they're part of that part of that story. And one kind of last question for me is: Is there any narratives in education that you think are outdated and that we need to kind of let go of? <laughs> well, I think we need to be moving to a more modern uh, learning environment. I think that's pre that's pretty clear. That um, uh, if we look at twenty first century capabilities, we're looking we you know we're looking at high level interpersonal skills, high level teamwork, um, high level problem solving. You know, being innovative in the way we think and work, and that should be reflected in the physical setting of the school. So, so high end use of technology, open plan plan learning centres, um, uh, you know, learning spaces. That that reflect the, the real world environment that they'll move to in the future. Are you Australia's Ken Robinson? <laughs> I wish I was. He is my hero. Yeah. I met him once in uh, Sydney and I was very proud to stand before him and have him sign my book. So uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a great aspiration, but no one can replace Sir Ken. All right. <laughs> well, the book is From the Ground Up, How a Community with a Vision and a Principal with a Purpose Created a Thriving State School. It's by Principal Stephen Cook. It's out via Black Ink and it's a great pleasure to meet you. Congratulations. Thank you. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. It's that time of the week that we so look forward to. It's the Breakfasters Live segment where we get to speak with someone and enjoy a live performance. And this week we couldn't be more thrilled and deeply honoured to welcome Stephen Cummings to Triple R. Of course, a, a musician who needs no introduction, mm -hmm. but we do want to welcome you. <laughs> welcome, Stephen. Hi, Thank you Good so much for, for coming in. Uh, you are well known, of course, for all of your incredible work as a solo artist with sports, your Countdown Award, an ARIA Award winning singer and songwriter. And uh, we were just talking before we jumped on the microphones about your Triple R program with Johnny Topper back yes. to Unappendant. To Unappendant, that run went for about a year. Amazing. Yes. Of course, Johnny Topper, you can catch every Wednesdays on You and Groovy, but mm. legendary Triple R broadcaster um, alumni back with us today. So oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I'm looking at an archive, 1981. Wow. What? <laughs> With Johnny Topper. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, right. Who's, of course, still on the air. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Well, it's, we're mm. thrilled to have you. And mm. the, um, the occasion of, of this particular conversation is the release of an extraordinary album, 100 Years From Now, which came out last week. The fact um, of, well, in a statement around this album, it, it mentions... A that in March 2020, you suffered a life-changing stroke. And the new album is very much a product of that experience and the enthusiastic support of yeah. the community. You've described it as a very therapeutic experience. Can you tell us a little bit about the writing of the record? Oh, well, yes, it was... Um, well, I, when I was flying up to Rivington for a couple of shows and with Sam, actually, and as the plane came into land in Brisbane... I didn't know, but I had a stroke. Indeed. But um, I could still sort of walk, albeit very crookedly. I kept thinking I was going to fall over and stuff like that. Anyway, it, um, we didn't find out I had a stroke till I got back into Melbourne when my wife saw me and said, what's happened to you? 
your mask so funny and blah, blah, blah. And so I went to a hospital and they put me straight in. So I was in hospital for a couple of months. And then um, I had to learn to walk again and I couldn't play guitar. And so um, I was... I, I sort of retired, just retired from music, and um, but the idea that I couldn't, that I, with the um, the therapy, I also had throat therapy because I wasn't breathing properly and stuff like that. So I, and, and doing that, I am discovered I might be able to sing again. And so that was a really depressing thought, just because it's something I've always been able to do. And um, absolutely, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't do it at all. So um, I was really good friends with Robert Good from I'm I'm talking or is an airport. He's played in lots of Melbourne sort of groups, and um, he um, just um, to uh, and also. My house was getting renovated at the time, so I was staying in a flat up the road from my house, and we'd go every day and record at um, the house that was getting renovated in my youngest child's old bedroom, and um, we sort of made the record like that, basically, um, and uh, we used an engineer who had worked with Steve Kilby called Sam Polinsky, who'd done all more dance sort of records, um, um, sort of trippy sort of records, Absolutely. and um, but um, so they all just did it because they liked me, and um, it's a beautiful community. Yeah, endeavor. and then um, we knew Robert produced um, Underground Lovers, and so we uh, we mentioned it to Vince from the Underground Lovers, and he he um. We co-wrote, ended up co-writing songs with Vince from the Underground Lovers and um, Glenn, I mean, and um, Philippa sang a duet with them, one of the songs, and um, this other Melbourne sort of funky group called Sex on Toast, and with, with the main guy from them and his girlfriend, they came along and sang, and, and Lilith Lane and um, just different people around Melbourne. It's just an extraordinary yeah, you, cast who I'd met over the years or whatever, and so they all just did it free or rec- recorded a basic. So it was very different for me because um, I've always done everything myself, and now with this, I was no longer sort of. I was just dealing with what they'd give me. Well, the, the results are just spectacular. Yeah, and as it turned out, it was really it turned out to be really good. I really like it. <laughs> but so um, it was a, it was a weird experience. Absolutely, and certainly, as you were just describing, an, an incredible family of musicians uh, around you and artists who are kind of yeah realizing this this vision and it is a very distinctive sounding album that explores sounds that are sort of you know unfamiliar to listeners of your previous records and it is so rich in its arrangement a hundred years from now is the name of the album and you're going to perform a song for us with sam leman today could you tell us which song you've chosen yeah i'm going to do um a song i wrote with graham lee from the used to be in the triffids and it's called um tired of being blue well, thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah. Listening to Triple R Breakfasters Live with Stephen Cummings. 
it all went down I shoveled spoons in my coffee I had no energy Didn't know what to do When it all went down So tired Tired of being blue Drives me up the wall Acting in this way That bird has flown Gone home alone What am I to do? So tired Tired of so hard to reveal to you my uncertainty holding back my tears facing all my fears what am I to do so tired tired of being There's no getting out of this With a silly story I sit on my seat With a view of the street And what am I to do So tired of being So tired of being blue Tired of being blue Tired of being blue Thank you very much. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just listening there to an extraordinary live in-studio, Breakfasters Live, with Stephen Cummings' Tired of Being Blue, which concludes, I believe, the beautiful record which you have just released, which, yes. of course, is called 100 Years From Now, which we've been speaking about. A tremendous honour to have you with us, Stephen. Oh, thank you very much. And a huge thanks as well to Sam Lemon, who has been with us today on accompanying a guitar, sounding stunning, and... There'll be an opportunity to see you with the full band. Of course, we were, yeah. we were talking just before about the amazing uh, community of musicians around yeah, you. Yeah, I've got a lot of the people playing in my band for um, two shows. One at Memo on... Um, I think it's the 19th of... Yeah. Oh, sorry, the 10th, 10th of, of June. June, Saturday, forgive me. Yeah, with Tanya Lee's on as well, supporting us. And um, one show in Sydney with... Um, Lilith Flynn supporting us on the 18th, a Sunday Arbo show. Beautiful. Well, that would be unmissable shows, both of them, and uh, certainly tickets would be on sale now from 
the websites, but yeah, Mama Music Hall is the local one that's happening on the 10th of June. I think doors at 7 and showtime at 8 p.m. Been such a wonderful opportunity to catch up, Stephen, and yeah, congratulations on the whole the record, which is just such a stunning oh, piece of work. Thanks and any much. chance on bringing back two on a pendant? <laughs> oh, no, I think um, trouble's enough, good enough to do. You know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Excellent. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.